Well, we put into place is something we called Fight Club. I'll probably get in trouble for talking about Fight Club. The first rule is you don't talk about Fight Club. But it's uh, 30 minutes every week. And it's just for myself, my engineering and my design leader. And we get together and we know that we're going in there to have a conflict. I think often when those difficult conversations or those conflicts come up, you can put them off until they become much bigger. Or if somebody is conflict adverse, they can try to avoid having it at all. But by having, you know, like a specific sort of time in your week for something like that, then you're sort of in that mindset. You know, you're going in there to solve a hard problem. You know that there's going to be a disagreement and it makes it much better. And I think the relationship we all have is so much better because we get on top of these things early. Today, my guest is Megan Cook. Megan is head of product for Jira, which is used by 75% of Fortune 500 companies. 125,000 customers globally and is by far the most popular project management tool in the world. Megan has been at Atlassian for just under 11 years. Prior to Atlassian, Megan was an analyst, a developer, and an agile coach. In our conversation, we discuss what Atlassian has done so right in being able to offer 15 different product lines, which many companies dream of, how they continue to stay ahead of the market in spite of the many competitors in the space, why Megan considers play so essential to building great teams and great products, a bunch of tactical advice for getting buy-in for your ideas, tips for being a successful PM in a remote environment, also great story of failure, and so much more, including surfing tips. With that, I bring you Megan Cook after a short word from our sponsors. This time of year is prime for career reflection and setting goals for professional growth. I always like to spend this time reflecting on what I accomplished the previous year, what I hope to accomplish the next year, and whether this is the year I look for a new opportunity. That's where today's sponsor, Teal, comes in. Teal provides you with the tools to run an amazing job search. With an AI-powered resume builder, job tracker, cover letter generator, and Chrome extension that integrates with over 40 job boards, Teal is the all-in-one platform you need to run a more streamlined and efficient job search and stand out in this competitive market. There's a reason nearly 1 million people have trusted Teal to run their job search. If you're thinking of making a change in the new year, leverage Teal to grow your career on your own terms. Get started for free at tealhq.com slash Lenny. That's tealhq.com slash Lenny. Let me tell you about a product called Sprig. Next-gen product teams like Figma and Notion rely on Sprig to build products that people love. Sprig is an AI-powered platform that enables you to collect relevant product experience insights from the right users so you can make product decisions quickly and confidently. Here's how it works. It all starts with Sprig's precise targeting, which allows you to trigger in-app studies based on users' characteristics and actions taken in product. Then, Sprig's AI is layered on top of all studies to instantly surface your product's biggest learnings. Sprig Surveys enables you to target specific users to get relevant and timely feedback. Sprig Replays enables you to capture targeted session clips to see your product experience firsthand. Sprig's AI is a game changer for product teams. They're the only platform with product-level AI, meaning it analyzes data across all of your studies to centralize the most important product opportunities, trends, and correlations in one real-time feed. Visit sprig.com slash Lenny to learn more and get 10% off. That's sprig.com slash Lenny. Megan, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the podcast. 
Oh, thanks so much, Lenny. I am a big fan of your podcast and I am excited to be here. I have a lot of things I want to chat about. I've heard about many things that you're extremely good at as a leader, as a product leader. And so I'm just going to poke around a bunch of different areas. I wanted to start with something that I hear you're just a big advocate of and really good at, which is creating space for play on teams and also just creating uh, a lot of psychological safety, something that you find really important that helps your teams be as successful as they are. Could you just talk about why this is important to you, why creating play and psychological safety are so important to you, and then just how you do this, like maybe an example or two of how you actually apply this on your teams? Yeah, absolutely. So I think especially, you know, recently in the tech industry, it almost feels like we're going through a bit of a wake-up call at the moment. You know, we were in this time of plenty and everyone was hiring like crazy and then COVID hit and suddenly people's behaviors had to really change. You know, people couldn't travel. They had to work from home. There's a whole bunch of industries that got highly impacted by that. And it created this time of high ambiguity. Before that or to the start of that, I was noticing within my team just some little indicators uh, where people weren't all comfortable to speak up when we'd had really open discussions with the most junior person or the most senior person were happy to talk about anything. Uh, there was more anonymity in, in feedback. Uh, every time things were coming to leadership to give feedback on, it was just sort of painfully polished. And I think once it, you know, it gets to that level, that's a really bad time to give feedback because it probably means that a whole ton of work has gone into it and you might waste a whole bunch of work if you have to correct direction or make significant changes. And so I was looking at my team and thinking, yeah, something doesn't feel quite right here. And then I went to this leadership outside and one of the speakers there was Ben Crow. And he's a an expert in having the right mindset. So he works with Olympic gold medalist and uh, Ash Barty is another one. He's a tennis player. She's the number one tennis player in the entire world. So these athletes, you have to really perform under a lot of pressure, you know, in front of a lot of people. And he talked about how to be in that state of flow, you know, where everything is going really well and new ideas are coming and you're making progress. You've got great momentum. And he talked about how to be in that flow state, there needs to be this sense of play. And that's, you know, things are fun. Your mind's open to new ideas. You feel really present. You're not stressing out and thinking about a ton of other different things. And it's funny because when I thought about play, where my mind went to the opposite of play is work, right? We often hear work and play as, as opposites together. But his point was actually that the opposite of play is fear. And I realized, I, I think that's what I was seeing a lot of in my team. And that's why the ideas were getting more incremental. So took that decision and went, okay, we, we need to look at psychological safety in that team or we're never going to get to some of these bigger, bolder, more innovative ideas. And so I brought my group product managers together and we sat around and discussed it and all together came up with some ideas that we've implemented then, since then, which was, has had a, a really good impact. So I'll give you I'll give you a couple. Yeah, please. Yeah, one of the first ones was uh, my team of PMs is big enough now where not everyone necessarily gets to know everyone else, and when you don't have that relationship, it can feel a little scary. You you don't have that trust that you understand how people are going to respond to you. 
and you're not sure about reaching out. So we divided the team into these smaller groups, the peer feedback groups. And the idea is that they meet uh, every two weeks or so. Somebody brings something that's in a pretty rough draft that they want to get reviewed, and then everyone's expected to give feedback. And because we've got people in there who are different leadership levels, it's a really good opportunity to model the kind of feedback that's helpful. And the culture there is is one of everyone lifting that person up to make their work stronger. So people can get in there. They can show that you can show work that's that's really in the early stages and feel comfortable with that. They can see that getting feedback can actually be really positive. And they can see how all of these people together, they can rely on them and forge those new relationships so they can rely on more people to help them out. This is so interesting and it's such a good idea. And it's like such a simple and good idea. And I'm surprised I haven't heard of people doing this before. Basically, you pair up PMs, ICPMs and maybe managers to to give each other feedback. And is the feedback on like one pagers and PRDs and strategy docs and things like that? What sort of documents are they giving feedback on? So it's really open-ended. It can be anything. It can be, here's a new experience we're looking at launching. Here's a new strategy. I've taken my own strategies in there and gotten excellent feedback, surprising feedback from the team. It can be a new experiment that people think of running and, and anything to do with the crop. And I think what's, as you kind of implied, one of the powers of this approach is it's a small team, so it's less stressful. And there's no like, like you're not in the room often too. Like, I guess you are sometimes, as you just said, but uh, usually it's like peers and they could be a little more open and less worried about looking bad. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just, a lot of it is just building that muscle. You know, you, you might go through an experience once every quarter or once every six months and that can feel really stressful. But if you're doing it again and again, you get used to it, you get used to what to expect, you get a bit more practice, it can feel much more comfortable. That's awesome. Such a simple and powerful idea. It's kind of like everyone's always suggesting getting a mentor, getting a coach as a PM, and those are hard to find. And this is just like a little informal. It's almost like a little um, peer group, board of directors for your work. We talk about that on the podcast sometimes. So anyway, that's awesome. Really good idea and something anyone can do. Yeah, thank you. Great. Okay. You have a second uh, yeah. idea. Yeah, yeah. One of the other things we do is we get everyone together uh, just like every six months. So all of the product managers get together in the same place. And the idea is to have a bit of an onsite. Now we start off with just doing something fun because everybody, uh, as you might know, Atlassian is uh, a remote organization. So everybody works remote all the time. They can work from anywhere. Uh, and so people often, they're not used to necessarily being all together in the same place. And it can take a little while to warm up. And then after that, we talk about strategy. We do workshops on different elements of craft, boosting that craft together. And so a similar kind of thing. People get to build relationships together. They get to sort of see all these different ideas bouncing around, which can help uplift their own ideas and help them be more innovative. Uh, and this last one, I actually had some senior leaders from all over the organization come in Seoul and share their stories of failure. Uh, so just to get everyone used to that idea that it's it's okay to fail. And actually, if the learnings are really good, maybe it should even be celebrated. And it's not something to be scared of and taking the big swing isn't a bad thing. It can be a really powerful way to learn as well. I love that. We've been talking about failure a lot on this podcast. So, right. Uh, we're super aligned with the power of that. 
And so just to be clear, so what you do there is, is, is it the entire product team of Atlassian or is it just your team in this six, every six month? Um, it's just my team. And then okay. we pull in other product managers that we work closely with as well. And then you fly them all to Australia, I imagine. Yeah. All, all to Sydney. <laughs> to Sydney. Amazing. Okay. And I think, so the key there is it's not just like go meet each other. It's, uh, training almost on different skill sets, helping people level up in say craft or I don't know, communication or writing or something like that. And then who, who teaches these things? Is it like individual team members or you bring someone in? We have a real mix actually. So yeah, we'll bring in outside experts or we'll get, uh, there's a lot of knowledge and a lot of skill within the team itself. So, you know, you'll have different product managers who have different strengths. We have totally different teams. So someone on a growth team, for example, might want to teach everyone about how to create great hypotheses. Well, we'll get someone external from the team, but internal to Lassie, he has those skills who can come in. I love that also gives those PMs a chance to, one, learn the skill better themselves because they're teaching it, and also just teach and present and public speaking and all that stuff. There's all these other benefits to doing that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as a product leader, it's really important to model the behavior you want to see from your teams, whether that's getting up there and teaching, presenting, explaining different concepts, explaining the business, or just being vulnerable and talking about when things haven't worked out. When we started this question, you talked about how there was kind of the shift at Atlassian where things started to feel more formal and people started to feel less open to sharing and being criticized in meetings. Just in case people might feel that might be happening in their company, do you remember roughly when, what size that started to happen at or signs of like, huh, I'm noticing people are sharing less or being more worried about, about talking in big meetings? Probably when we got into really different sort of uh, streams of work that were happening where people didn't have as much of a reason to interact with each other. So I think that was probably around, even even around 15, we started to see a little bit of 15 product managers? Yeah. yeah. Got it. Cool. That's a good stat. Yeah. You know what? I'll give um, one more thing that we do. So we, uh, we've just started trying something new called uh, the $10 game for priorities. And so that's where I think yep. people might have played the $10 game for your priorities when it comes to a strategy or something like that. We started trying it out with your individual priorities. So you and your manager might come in and you can list out all of your priorities and then show you through just dividing up $10 where you're spending all of your time. And I've done this with people and we've sort of gotten down to like, I'm putting 10 cents here this week. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, is that, what is that? 20 minutes, 30 minutes? <laughs> but I don't think that's actually moving, right? Uh, and so it's been great to see where people are overloaded and alignment on, you know, do my priorities stack up, but also am I spending the time on the most important things that, that could be moving the business forward? Awesome. Okay. So you mentioned that y'all are remote and have been, have been, has it been remote from the beginning? No, not from the beginning. Actually, when COVID hit, I think that was the big moment. Okay. Okay. Got it. That makes sense. So a lot of companies are moving to remote work trying to figure out how to work remotely. It seems like it's working really well for Atlassian, at least from what I can see. Is there any advice or any big lessons or tips or tricks you've learned that you could share for how to be effective working remotely, especially as a product manager? It feels like as a PM, 
the job has gotten so much harder having to be remote. And so, yeah, I'm curious if you just have any advice you could share for people trying to make this work for their company or for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a really good question because it's not easy. And I, we definitely went through a whole bunch of pitfalls at the beginning. But we're really firm believers that you don't need to be in the office to build world-class products. So we call our approach team anywhere. And this means that anywhere that Lassian, anyone at Lassian can choose where they want to work every day. We think it's a bit more human that flexibility shouldn't be a perk that it fundamentally can change people's lives depending on what else they have on outside of work. And so we think less about where do you work and we think more about uh, how to be productive and effective in your work. To your point, you know, we started doing this right when COVID hit. So it's been about three years. Um, and actually we just released a guide on with our key learnings from that. Um, it's all about you know, a thousand days of remote work, which folks can go and find on our work life blog under research at Atlassian.com if they want to dive in there more. But I can give you a couple of tips from that and, and what we found from some of our research. Yeah, and we'll link to that doc in the show notes. Okay, great. Uh, so the first one is just making time for connection. So I, that human connection is definitely built in person. But what we found is that it doesn't have to be something that happens every single day. So we found that connection and productivity, they both get boosted by about 30% when you bring people together, but then intentionally. And it lasts for months. So we found that you can do it on average like three times a year. Uh, and so that's why my PM team are getting together every six months. But in addition to that, we get the entire team together every other six months. So we end up all getting together every uh, like four times a year. So every other six months, uh, what we do is we get all of the engineers, designers, everybody who's working together. We book out entire floors in the office. And then for an entire week, we're just there. And for some of it, we're just working together as you normally would, but the, at desks and just having those little, you know, water cooler type conversations, it builds the relationships again. Other times we're doing workshops, an important piece of work that where it's easier to do when you're all in person and sometimes we're just having fun together. So we call that a bit of a festival. You mentioned that you measured some kind of productivity improvement. Do you happen to know how they measure that? Because that is really interesting. Oh, that's a good question. I don't, but I can get that for you. That'd be cool to know. So we'll, I think we'll keep this in the podcast episode. And then if there's anything in the show notes that we link to that talks about how measure that that'd be really interesting because that's just like a cool stat to have anyway for all kinds of other things i'm curious yeah how they measure that. yeah absolutely okay cool um any other tips i think the second one is to be really intentional so i mentioned that we went through um you know sort of a bit of a few stumbling blocks at the start one of those was uh, immediately everyone sort of filled up everybody's calendar with all of these meetings like straight away it was almost as if you know, Lenny, if you and I were working together, I used to be able to just like poke my head around my monitor and ask you something. And people are afraid that now that I can't do that, how do I get those answers? So I, I need more time with everybody. And that definitely does not help productivity at all, right? Uh, and so, you know, as PMs, we need time for creative work. We need that deep work time. And that doesn't happen when you've got all of these meetings with 30 minutes in between each of them. You need sort of, you know, three to four hours to get that going, to get into that flow state. 
So my leadership team and I, we actually sync up our calendars. So we end up having these long stretches twice a week, all at the same time. And so we all get a chance to do this deep work. It means we get less time for meetings, but it also means that if something comes up that's unexpected that we all need to work on together, then we've got that time there so we can be a bit more relaxed about it. We know we can get to it. What time of the day is that meeting? They're both at different times. So the first one's taking up one afternoon and the second one's taking out all of the time in the morning. Depending on what kind of person you are, one is going to see you better than the other. So we just went for one age. I actually had the same thing just personally, where I had these deep work block times on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. The title of the invite was, if you book time during this, I will slap you. And it really worked well. (laughs) But I think you're talking about this other missing piece of remote work for PMs where you can't just walk by and ask an engineer, hey, how's it going? Ask a designer, oh, let me, where you at? Let me, you know, I just take a peek at where you're working on. Like that stuff I think is really hard to replicate. And if your suggestion is block out this time for your leadership team to be able to check in with each other. Is the idea there it's deep work time and don't bother anyone on the team? Or is it, you can also just ping your like end manager and like, hey, how's it going? And the idea is that it's deep work time and mm, okay. it's it's your time to be protected to, to do that work. What I found that works really well, I, I think in the manager and report kind of relationship. So I have these really quick, punchy one-on-ones with my reports that every week, And then I make sure that I've got space in my calendar because something will come up where even if we had a longer one-on-one, that might not cover it, right? They might just need an hour to run through something. There might be a really difficult strategy problem they've run into. And so they all know that they can ping me for more time and I'll have that flex in my calendar for that. Awesome. Any other tips along those lines? Well, you probably noticed about you know, blocking a bunch of deep work time is that you don't have as much time for meetings. So that meeting time becomes really precious. And what we do there is I, I personally hate having status updates as a meeting. So we make it really clear that if we're having a meeting, this is to solve a problem. And if it's just a status update, that's fine. But I can read that asynchronously at a time that works for me and, and so can everybody else in the team if they want to do that. We, we actually, we use our own tool for this, which makes it really easy. So it's called Atlas and it lets you or the team put in status updates for a goal or a project regularly, and then it'll bundle it all up into an email so you can quickly get across everything that you're interested in, which has been really helpful. And then that just makes the documentation rigorous as well. So you document things and uh, we, we use Confluence, but all of our decisions, strategies, uh, kickoffs for projects. That's all really well-documented for new starters. Or even if you're you know, a year down the line and you're thinking, why, why did we come to that decision in the first place? What were our assumptions? What were our hypotheses? It's easy to go back and take a look at that and, and be able to reflect. And I think the last thing is, you know, I work with people who are in the US, they're in Europe, they're all over the world. It's really hard to find a time that works well for an Aussie, an American, and a European to get together. You know, someone's waking up at 3 a.m. or something. So what's become a big part of how we work is actually audio and video recordings. So I actually had someone reporting to me for a while who was in France. And uh, what we would do was record videos back and forth. And they're quick. You can, you know, 
just use colloquial language. They're really casual. You don't have to wonder about someone's tone that comes across. So that's becoming almost like a, like a completely new document type for us and has been really important in remote work. You can put it at the top of a document and explain the document, which is really nice. That's a big part of why we bought Loom. I was just going to say that. It all makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it was just becoming such a big part of our life, right? And it, yeah, it's just massively helpful. Kind of along the same lines, being fully remote, it is harder to get buy-in on things you're working on, I imagine. And something I hear you're great at is getting buy-in, especially getting buy-in on ideas and projects from executives. So I think things that make it extra challenging at, at Atlassian, there's two CEOs, which I didn't know until recently. Uh, you're also all very remote. And... So maybe those two reasons make it extra hard. Plus, it's just generally hard to get buy-in on projects that you're working on. What advice do you share with product leaders, PMs that come to you asking for advice on how to get better at getting buy-in for your ideas? Yeah, this is this can be really hard to get right. I watch a lot of people struggle with this. And you're right, being fully remote can make it a bit more challenging. And then I think also, you know, you've got your cross-functional partners that you're working with as this tight-knit team and how do you form that relationship? But I'll, I'll start with just general buy-in. Most of the time when people come to me and they want to ask how to get buy-in, they've got, they've got a date in mind. They've got a particular meeting and they have this idea where they're going to craft this perfect proposal. They're going to present it and everyone's going to give them thumbs up and they win. And that's the wrong attitude, I think, even to start with, to getting buy-in. It's, it's more of a journey. So I'll give you an example where I was looking at how do people uh, start their day in, uh, in Jira and how, how do people get started in Jira? And we had this idea of we could craft more templates uh, so that we could give people more um, a better way to start with very different use cases when they, when they came into the product. And this could change everything from even just the front homepage where they started all the way to what's happening in product. It would create this really nice flow. Jira is also a platform as well as just, you know, Jira software, the product. There's actually four different products built on top of it. So when you want to go and change something like that, you're actually changing it for all of these different products. It's, it's not just the one. And so what was really important there was partnering with a whole bunch of different stakeholders. So every product that this could potentially negatively or positively impact, we went to very early with the idea and the proposal and we got their feedback. And then we came to them again and again as we developed it further. So as we got designs, as we got more data, as we tested things out with users, we kept coming back and we take their feedback on board. And so I think creating those partnerships is really important. And I will say the same can tr be true at the executive level. So often you go into these meetings where you're giving a proposal and you're trying to get that final yes on the decision. You've got a lot of people in there with a lot of different angles that they can look at that problem and so much good experience to draw on. So, you know, your CTO is going to have a totally different way of looking at something and different concerns from your chief marketing officer to your head of design, right? They're all going to look at things differently and be thinking about it differently. And so if you know that you're going to be having a big impact in someone's space and you want to hear from them, it's good to set that meeting up early, you know, when you, you've got some clarity, but it's not fully fleshed out. And so that you can fold in some of their concerns because they'll have this much broader view. And that also creates people 
who will be an advocate for you once you get into that that room, that final meeting. So I think all all of those in the lead up, there's a lot of lead up work to getting buy in that makes sure that you know you have uh, a good time in that meeting. Just to maybe summarize, so far what you've shared, one is just basically it's lure people in early, especially the person that it's going to impact most. I think in addition to that is having that mindset of being open to not necessarily coming up with the right solution. It's more about solving for the problem or the opportunity, right? So you, you want to be clear about like your hypotheses and what are your facts and what are the principles you're using to make a decision and just be be open to not necessarily ending up with the solution you thought would be best. I imagine most people think they are always in that state. I am very open to feedback. I am totally open-minded, but really they're not. Is there anything that you think would either convince someone you're actually not as open-minded as you seem or any advice for how to come across as more open-minded? Or is there anything there you see like, I see this all the time. People think they're listening, but they're not. You should change. I think one way to be, to, to sort of force yourself into that situation is to be clear about the hypotheses you have and the facts. So I think often people can present as, you know, this is absolutely the case. This is what I know. And this is obviously the correct response to the situation where most of the time, you know, you've got a good set of data, you've got a good understanding with your knowledge of the space, but what is actually going to happen is a hypothesis. There's always going to be something you don't know. And oftentimes you don't know until you ship it. That is absolutely the best test of whether or not what you thought was going to happen will actually happen. And so I think when you come to the meeting going, okay, here's here's the top facts we actually know, and here's the hypotheses, and here's my plan to prove or disprove them, then you're exposing um, your idea for people to go, oh, here's more that I know about that in hypotheses, or here's some data that you don't have, or here's another way to think about it. I think people can feel like they're not going to be credible, right? You, that you have to come in, you have to come in confident, you have to come in knowing exactly what that solution is going to be. But I usually find that if you come in there open and you expose your thinking and where you could use some help on perspectives, that actually that builds more credibility. Because every everyone knows that you are not going to have all the answers and you're not going to be able to see the future. And so that can really help uh, in building people's trust in you and that you know what you're doing. Is there an example of that that comes to mind to make it even more real of either someone on your team doing that or you doing that? Because I think it's still going to be hard for people to be like, realize, hey, I'm not actually paying attention to anyone. And I just want to convince them this idea is right. This is what we're doing. Just come on, get out of my way. Give me the okay. An example from my past is yeah, there was this potential acquisition that we could have made. And I was really, really keen on it because it would mean adding a whole bunch of much needed capability really quickly to the product. And I just love that momentum. And I didn't see any other way that we could do this. So I've looked at a bunch of other options about building it in-house and it just didn't seem possible. And there were a few people that I needed to convince, you know, my boss, but also the head of engineering for the area. And when I took it to them, what I learned was the head of engineering was able to pull a bunch of people from other areas within the company to come and bolster this effort who had all of the knowledge that we needed. So what seemed like the impossible task, he actually had this extra knowledge to make possible. 
And in the end, you know, acquisition or not, that doesn't really matter. It's more about being able to get that value back to our customers. That's what we're solving for. And so it was really about coming back, not falling in love with that solution and that other company. It was just taking a step back and going, okay, well, um, really, it's just what, what are we here to do? What's the real goal at the end of the day? Awesome. Okay. Is there anything else you wanted to share along these lines before I move on to a different topic? The other thing I would say is that setting up the meeting when you finally get there can be really important as well. I, I often see people go in there and they've got a big document or a presentation or something and they just launch into it. They're really excited. But actually, you want to take a step back and you want to be really clear on what are you looking for from that group? You can ask for the decision. You can ask for feedback. You can ask for, you know, you can expose where you're not quite sure about something and you want them to be thinking about that angle in particular and helping test that hypothesis with what they know. And so setting that early, you can put that in people's heads as they read through your document or listen to the rest of the proposal. Then I find it's really useful to have a narrative that just encompasses everything that's that you're going to talk about. So just really brief, like what's the current situation? What has changed and what are the implications that you now want to, we mean we have a problem to solve and an opportunity that we can go often. And uh, the last thing is just making sure you've got your data. And the people, there's executives, there's people in the meeting, you know, they're usually across a whole ton of stuff. Just hearing about maybe they've got 10 proposals a day, right? And they're across all different areas in the business. And so they're not going to have the detail that you do. So being really thoughtful about what you bring, what are the key points that are going to help them understand the situation as clearly as possible, but then really knowing your data so that you can dive in in more detail where they need it. And that, that also helps build your credibility and builds people's confidence in the plan to go ahead. Would you mind just quickly summarizing these pieces of advice? And then I was going to move on to another area of strength of yours that I hear. Yeah, sure. So the first one is to find people who are affected or are negatively or positively or might have a really good point of view and partner with them as you develop the solution or, or the response to the current situation. And the second one is to come at it with this uh, mindset of being open, of being really core, key on what is the core problem or the value that you want to deliver and just being open to how you get there and, and things that you don't know, which might adjust along the way. And the last one is just setting up the meeting well. So coming in, making sure that it's very clear what you need. Do you need a decision or something uh, like that? And making sure that you've got very good supporting data to build that credibility with your audience. Love it. I uh, This is where the term uh, or the cliche of product managers asking, but what problem are we trying to solve comes from? But it comes from in a really important place of always focusing on Let's all align on here is the problem we're solving because oftentimes, as you chatted about, the biggest disagreements come from people just thinking they're solving different problems. And on that note, I have a swag store now, LennySwag.com, and we have stickers on there, <laughs> a bunch of cliche PM terms, including, but what problem are we trying to solve? And so I think that's, but it's rooted in, that's actually a really important question to ask. Sometimes you get annoying. Yeah, that's such a good to have front and center, you know. Just need that as a big sign. Maybe the sticker needs to be bigger. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. This episode is brought to you by Vanta, helping you streamline your security compliance to accelerate your growth. Thousands of fast-growing companies like Gusto, Com, Quora, and Modern Treasury trust Vanta to help build, scale, manage, and demonstrate their security and compliance programs and get ready for audits in weeks, not months. By offering the most in-demand security and privacy frameworks such as SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, HIPAA, and many more, Vanta helps companies obtain the reports they need to accelerate growth, build efficient compliance processes, mitigate risks to their businesses, and build trust with external stakeholders. Over 5,000 fast-growing companies use Vanta to automate up to 90% of the work involved with SOC 2 and these other frameworks. For a limited time, Lenny's podcast listeners get $1,000 off Vanta. Go to vanta.com slash Lenny. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash Lenny to learn more and to claim your discounts. Get started today. Okay, so something else that I hear you're incredibly good at, and it, it's actually related to all of these things we've been talking about, is the way someone described you is you're really good at fighting the good fight, which essentially is just doing the things that need to be done that aren't necessarily popular or that people are prioritizing right now. I hear that you led to a big investment in CSAT at Atlassian because you just felt like this was the right way of doing it. And there's a few other projects that came out of just like, I'm just going to do the thing that needs to be done. Can you just talk about why that's important to you? What sort of impact that sort of had? And then just like how you actually successfully do that. Obviously, it ties into this uh, skill of getting buy-in on stuff. I think that's a really good example, actually, the CSAT example, because sometimes uh, you can get caught up in let's add value, add value, add value to the product. But if the customers aren't satisfied with what you built, or in our case, we found that one of the core reasons was the usability wasn't where it needed to be, then they can't access that value anyway. It, it doesn't matter. And Sometimes it can be hard to get investment for things like that because it's not like, you know, the shiny, exciting new thing. It's, no, I, I want to work on the features we already have and improve those. So it was about two years ago, our chief experience officer, he cared really deeply about improving our CSAT scores and uh, asked me to look into it. And in, maybe, you know, in this briefly course, explain CSAT real quick because some people may not be familiar with that term. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, of course. Uh, so CSAT means customer satisfaction. So for us, we actually have a survey so that we can measure CSAT, and it just asks um, customers to rate how satisfied they are with the product and then different aspects. So we can see for um, different tasks that they need to perform or different aspects of it, like uh, like the reliability or the speed or the usability. How, how do customers feel about that? We actually had a podcast episode recently where with Judd where we talked about NPS and how much there's data showing it's not actually a great predictor of anything. And he's a big fan of CSAT instead. So you could almost think of it as little replacement for NPS in a lot of cases. And then, sorry, pushed you off track. Keep going. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, so he, he cared really deeply about this, asked me to look into it. Even though this request was coming from the top, that doesn't mean that it gets any sort of funding. So we went through a couple of different steps to see what, what was worth investing in here. So first of all, I mentioned we had that survey. And so we had really rich feedback. So it's not just a rating for what we get. We get people um, talking about why they gave that rating. And that can really help us zero in on what are the key aspects that's bringing this down. And um, we also had great conversations with our customers. It was 
you know, the kinds of conversations that are really rich and really helpful, but so painful to listen to and go through because you're seeing somebody really struggle with something that you thought was going to bring them so much, so much value. And then we had a look at, well, what is this going to impact? And so logically, it's what we found, well, what we found was that uh, usability was one of the key reasons, like I said. And, and logically, if your product is hard to use in places, if some of the core actions are hard for people to do, then a new user to that product or a new customer is going to have a longer ramp up time, right? You, you've got a harder time showing them that there's value. And even for an existing customer, that's using your product really well, when they bring on a new user, that user might have a really hard time getting up to speed and using it and just completely slows them down. So from a business point of view, it can impact your new customer acquisition as well as your ability to expand. So there was some some good revenue connections in there as well. What I also found was that, uh, you know, we have a lot of dependencies. So we've got all of these platform teams and a lot of the improvements that would, would be really good to make to sort out this problem depended on uh, many, many teams around Atlassian. And they all had different goals, right, and other products that they had to serve to. I don't know if you've ever tried to align, you know, three or four different roadmaps so that the timing is just right to get some improvement through, but it's basically impossible. There was no way that was going to happen. But we did find that they were really passionate about this area and improving usability. So we worked together to find a low-cost way for those teams to help us make the changes that we need to, but they didn't have to bear the brunt of all the development costs. So each of those teams put forward, um, like we called them a shepherd, so that as our developers came in and made changes in the code base, that the shepherd would make sure that they weren't causing any issues and were doing reviews and reviews of designs and things like that. Uh, and so getting that buy-in, finding the data to support the reason why this was important, uh, and then we constructed the roadmap so that we found this sort of like a, a low cost, like very cheap way to have some impactful change early on. I think that was really, really important. And so we put together some of the, uh, just some of the designs for what the experiences were going to look like. So our, um, our head of design, Charlie Sutton at the moment, has this great uh, mantra of show, don't tell. And in this case, it was just at the core of getting people excited because you could show the initial experience, you could show the pain, you could bring in a video of a customer trying to use it and, and what they thought of it. And that just really brought that emotional aspect to it. It helped get people on board and then you show the new experience, which is just far and away miles better, you know, might cut out like 20 clicks or whatever. Uh, and so that all that worked together to get the investment that we needed. I think the last thing that was useful there actually is that we started pretty small too. So I think if you have a hypothesis and you can start small, you can get that investment more easily. You can show success. You can always build on that in the future to get more and more. But in this case, we got about 40 people to come in join onto this. Uh, and then as we ship things, we just made sure that it was quite, kept being quite small. And so we got that momentum really quickly. We kept with regular updates. We kept up the excitement about what the team was doing. Uh, at one stage, the team picked up something that was um, 
that was pretty impactful throughout the whole thing. So that that was dark mode. That took a lot of uh, coordination <laughs> around the whole company to make that thing happen, but it was well overdue. We loved it. Uh, and then, you know, the feedback that we got as well really helps with that. So I actually just yesterday, I saw some feedback on one of the changes we'd made recently. And this customer said it was the best quality of life improvement they've seen in a long time, which just just the way that's phrased even, you know, that gets you excited about the impact that you're having on that person. And this was the CSAT work or the dark mode? Uh, this was CSAT work. This okay, was okay. improving um, okay, okay. one of the processes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. That's amazing. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff I love about the story. One is just the power of just empowering yourself to do things that you believe need to be done. There's a lot of PMs and just people in general that just assume they don't have any power and the light, the square peg they're in is just all they're going to be able to do. And nobody's going to allow them to do things that they, they believe are important. No one else agrees with. So I think there's just a lot of power in just understanding that you have more power and leverage and agency than you probably think you do. But then you also have to do it well. So I took a bunch of notes as you were talking of the things that I think are core to getting stuff like this done, just like a scrappy project that you're kind of doing on your own without a lot of buy-in from the top initially. So one is stay small. Two is make it visual and visceral. So you can like, oh, wow, I could see this being amazing and getting people excited as you go. Making it really easy for people, I think, is a really interesting takeaway there. Just like we did all the work for you already for these other teams. Like it's going to be so easy. It's not going to be a lot of work for you. And then showed the data. Like here's what we've gotten from CSAT so far. Here's the impact you'll probably get from it. Here's how much work it'll take. Like show actual data. And then keep it scrappy. Feels like a lot of this just like stay small, keep it scrappy. Don't ask for a lot of resources initially and just kind of show momentum. I think that's really important. When you keep it scrappy and small in the beginning, it doesn't feel like it's as big of a bet. But that gives you the opportunity to really prove that the direction that you're going in could pay off. And so it's sort of like this little inroad to getting more investment. Awesome. Okay. I want to move to a different topic around Atlassian as a company, but is there anything else you wanted to share along those lines before we do that? No, let's go for it. Okay. So one of the most interesting things about Atlassian to me is it's a great example of a company that's been able to launch new product lines. This is the dream of every software company, business in general, is you start with one product that gets to a certain point and then you hit some kind of plateau and then you add an additional business product line and then you add more and more. And somewhere I read Atlassian has 15 products. Is that an accurate number? Yeah, that's right. I, yeah, we are up okay. to 15. Yes. Jesus Christ. Amazing. So this is like very rare and the dream of many companies. And so I'm just curious what it is you think Atlassian has done so right to have so many successful individual products. You know what? It's not, it's not like we added the first product and got it just right way off the bat. So uh, yeah, 15, we've had a lot of shots at this. Uh, so I might talk about two examples. Mm -hmm. So I think um, the first one, you know, if I think about Jira software, it started just as a, a really humble bug tracker. That was it. There was there wasn't as much to it. And then it's sort of weathered these massive changes in how people build software. So it launched in 2003, and if I remember correctly, 
like just to date this, the mobile phone that was most popular at the time was the Nokia sixty one hundred. I don't I don't know if you ever had one of those. But I don't remember what that specific cool. one was, but I'm picturing a Nokia phone. It's like a little brick. It was small brick. Yeah, it was my mother-in-law's favorite phone. It took us forever to get her off that onto something better. Mm. But, um, but you know, it's there's a lot that's changed since that time, right? There's been agile, there's been cloud, and what we saw recently was more in the expansion of software teams. So they used to be extremely developer-centric, and I think most people, when they think about Jira software, they think, oh, you know, that must be well, like eighty percent developers that are using it. But actually, it's more like 50% or maybe just shy of 50% are developers. And the rest is this huge mix of support and operations and sales and marketing, finance, design, HR, legal, just this massive mix of everybody, all the roles you could think of in a company, basically, that get in there and, and make work happen. And so what we saw, you know, years ago was, well, software teams aren't just developers anymore. And we saw this in our own teams as well. But we saw that these other teams, you know, the finance, the marketing teams, even design teams were sort of cobbling together their own solutions. So Jira software is incredibly flexible, which, which is a massive pro of it. But these teams were seeing software teams get more effective at the way they were getting work done and collaborating better. And they wanted that same benefit. And they started using Jira, but we hadn't set it up well for them at all. So it was quite difficult for them to do that. But the, you know, the positive was that there was this really good signal from our users that they were looking for more from us. And we knew that your marketing team is going to work differently from your developer team. That's how it should be. And so we started Jira Work Management to be more focused on all of these other use cases outside of the software team that our users were asking us to, to go ahead and solve. So that was a really great way to discover the need for a new product where these really strong signals from within our customers in that same area of business that we're really well set up to help them learn. What was that process like from noticing, hey, designers are using Jira and they're not having a good time. PMs are using Jira, researchers, and here's the issues they're running. So just like that insight of like, oh, interesting, there might be an opportunity here to launching, I don't know, the first version. Like were there, I don't know if you're actually involved in this, but whatever you can share would be awesome. Were there design partners they all chose and like, let's work with Salesforce and Microsoft and like, make sure they love it. Is it, how long was that process? Cause I think that's the prop people are so curious about just like, how do we validate and discover and then actually launch something that's going to work? Yeah. I, I wasn't as close to that one, but I can give you a, um, a second example. Oh, great. Yeah, for sure. So, um, the second example actually came from our product and channel innovation program and that like we we let anyone pitch an idea for a new product in the company if they want to so we we had this wonderful product manager tiny Christen, who saw demand for um, a solution for product managers to build their roadmaps a bit better before ideas get committed so as you know there's all of this there's this fuzzy area right before you actually start building something as a product manager where you're looking at lots of opportunities and ideas and you're prioritizing them and it's not really confirmed real work yet and nobody wanted to put that in jira because once it was in jira then everyone just expected it to happen and so this is this is where jira product discovery came from and in the past we tried things like this before in in new products at atlassian 
And they've been successful, but it's been really hard because large parts of the company process and, and those checks were optimizing for the success of the bigger products like Jira software. And so we changed that to create really small groups with stage gates that we call wonder, explore, make impact, and then getting to scale. And that meant to assess those bets at every stage. And, and the idea was to iterate really quickly, either to it not working out and proving that it couldn't be a business or iterate really quickly to, yes, it could, and we should invest more in this. And so with each stage, there would be, you know, a little bit of investment. So you say that for a stage of wonder might just be the person with the idea and then explore. You might add on a couple more people, like three people to go and really have a look at, you know, here's a prototype. Here are some customers that would be interested in it and could help us think about this some more and put together what the roadmap looks like. And then when you get to make, that's when you get a full team. But, you know, a full team is it's going to be 12 people or so. It's still not huge. Uh, and I think that's really important because at each stage you're getting validation, you're getting more customers who are interested and invested in helping you develop what that solution looks like. So you asked about uh, whether we went and partnered with a partner company like Salesforce for, for something like this for a new product. In this case, it was just really partnering heavily with our customers where we saw that interest coming through in, in our other products like Jira Software and building something that really works for them before expanding it to more and more customers and, and finding that product market fit and then upping the investment. Uh, and so we've, we've had a couple of new products recently that have gone through that sort of stage rollout. Um, so there's Jira Product Discovery, there's Atlas that I mentioned before, and I think Compass is the latest one. So what I'm hearing here is essentially there's this step by step gated process that you put new product ideas through. And they make it one step at a time. And imagine there's a leader that can decide, no, this one's not working out. Let's end it at the explorer phase and invest in other ideas, imagine. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's um, it might be someone who's looking after that particular market. Uh, and yeah, at each, at each one of those stages, there's that check on whether or not we continue to go ahead. And the stages are one, one wonder. I like that a lot. That's a great name. Explore, make. And then what were the other ones? Uh, impact and scale. Got it. So impact is like, is it showing any impact? Like we made it, is it working? And then scale. Got it. That makes sense. Just like, let's yeah. go for it. Yeah. Impact could be, you know, I can I can be self-sufficient in the revenue that I'm generating and scale is just like really launching it. Yeah. To take Launch off. it. Yeah. It goes on the website. Okay. So wonder is like a PM and an engineer, maybe at hackathon where we have an idea explorers, they maybe get a, a little bit of resourcing and they start exploring the idea, build a prototype, maybe find a design partner to, to think about this. Is that roughly right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Make sure you've got a clear roadmap. Yeah. And then, okay, got it. And then make, is that where they expand it to a few more customers and make it like more fully featured? Yeah. So make is where you, you'd actually build it. So the mm. prototype could oh, okay, be pretty it. simple, could be a bit cobbled together. Make is actually building the product and see if you can get more and more customers. That's where you'd start to, to make it with those customers. This is really interesting because again, I think Atlassian is one of the very few companies that has done this so well. And I don't know, this number is absurd. I've never heard of another company that has 15 successful products. I don't know how successful they are, but they're out there and people seem to be 
they're being promoted. I guess, is there any other advice to share along the lines of if someone is thinking about launching a second product, anything you would suggest they do or think about that may not be thinking about? Yeah, and I, I think my advice is sort of skewed towards the Atlassian case, right? Which is where you're you're in a 12,000 strong employee company. And how do you seed something that you want to run as more with more of a startup kind of mindset? So when you when you get to this size, you know, you've got like quarterly planning and um, business reviews and all of these different processes. And you don't necessarily want to put your seed startup through that. It's not not quite ready for that kind of thing. So I think uh, the key things here that make it really successful is starting really small with the idea and the solution to be proved and don't don't add too many people. Don't feel pressured to add too many people. I think it's easy to get really excited about the potential and just want to throw, you know, four or five teams at it. But that can, you know, like we were talking about this stuff, that can make things run slower. And so you, you want to protect them. And the second thing is just give them freedom to move really fast and solve those problems in a different way. So there are different expectations. They don't necessarily need to be a part of that process that I was talking about before. This team should just be running hard to prove whether or not the idea is going to work and whether there's product market fit. And for different approaches, you know, if I, if I want to add something to your software, but we're talking millions and millions of users there, you know, that thing has to be resilient. It's got to scale. There are all these things that users inherently expect from something like that. But for something small like this, we are proving product market fit. You don't need to think about that initially. So you, you've got to hold this to a different standard. Otherwise, you're just going to slow them down way too much. Um, and actually, we found that by letting them tackle problems a little differently, we found innovative way of looking at things that we can pull back into our other products. So for example, if you look at uh, Jira Park Discovery, and just the way that it, it gives more of a spreadsheet kind of view of, of a list of um, ideas and things like that, you know, some, some of the, some of the experience there is definitely something that we'll be pulling into Jira software. You mentioned that over the years, Jira has weathered many storms. From my perspective, it feels like it continues to weather many storms incredibly well. One, because there's just endless startups always coming at Jira, trying to become the new project management tool that everyone uses. And two, it just feels like people are always dissing on Jira, like, ah, Jira sucks, I want to use something else. On the other hand, it continues to dominate. Many people love it. I'm curious what you believe Atlassian generally has done and your team has done to keep Jira ahead of everyone. And I know you're probably going to say, we listen to customers better than anyone. So if that's a big part of the answer, definitely share that. But I'm curious, is there anything else people may not be recognizing of just like why Jira has been so successful for so long? Yeah, so I think the number of startups that enter this space just so shows how important the problem is that we solve and that, that problem of teamwork and collaboration. We've got more than 125,000 customers around the world who start their day in Jira, you know, millions of users, and the kinds of companies that use it. I, I just love hearing about what they do with it. They really blow me away, like uh, like NASA landing the Mars rover, right? Or Canva building this design platform for 40 million people. It's, it's just massive. I don't think you can beat that Mars rover story, all right? That's a good one. 
I think when you followed up with the Canva story, <laughs> that one that one's less interesting now, but it's also amazing. Okay, sorry, keep going. <laughs> and so, yeah, they're like you said, they are integral to our success, right? We do obsessive over them. We think if we do right by them, then we're going to be going in the right direction. I don't think we've ever had this sense of you know arrogance of just no matter how big we are, we've always got this uh, healthy dose of paranoia that we we need to keep working on improving things and being better. So we, you know, to your point about customer feedback, that is a big part of it. We bake in these rituals just to make it super easy for everyone to do that. So the, you know, the whole company gets an email every week and it's just got a random selection of feedback from our customers. It's got, you know, how they rate us and just a quote as well. And so everyone's sort of getting this dose of feedback all the time. Uh, we have regular share outs of all of the research that everyone gets. We get in-product feedback. We make it super easy to talk to our customers through social media or, you know, LinkedIn or um, X now. Uh, and then we also have a whole community space where customers can have longer conversations with us about different ideas that we're coming up with or feedback that they have for us. So I think I think that is all massively important for keeping Jira ahead of the pack. I think how we stay ahead in other areas is just that the culture is super, super open to innovation, kind of invites innovation. So we have these hackathons, we call them ship it. Everyone, the whole company stops and everyone can play with new ideas or technologies. It's it's a competition. So the best ideas get visibility. It can get people working with other people that they wouldn't normally. And uh, also the visibility of the ideas helps generate more ideas all, all over the place. Like I said before, innovation can come from anywhere. So anyone can pitch new ideas or products. Uh, and when we see new technologies emerging that are, we think are going to be really foundational and interesting, We'll carve off a team to go and look at that. So uh, I think, you know, we've had an AI team central to Atlassian for a long time, but with the advent of chat GPT, there's sort of like this, this huge move forward, right? There's this leap that's happening. Uh, and so in my team, I just carved off a, a small team to go and explore that and see what interesting things that we could do there. I think we, we don't shy away from tackling sort of subsets of the market that we're seeing that need a bit more love. So, you know, that like the Jira product discovery story that we were just talking about a second ago. And we also use our products a lot and that helps us find all of those little problems and, and makes it really real. We get really excited about the different uh, things that the whole team is working on. And we send lots of feedback to each other. I think that's also a really important part of it. Another area is when we look at how we're investing, you know, there's always this pressure to invest in the core business, of course, but we also make sure that we invest in seeding future businesses. And, and like we're talking about, they might not always work out. So we had that, the Compass and the Atlas example uh, of, of ones that have worked out. But um, we also see things through Atlassian inventions. So if there are interesting ideas or technologies, these might support the product later on. That's something that will go and see it out there in the market. And, and that's led to a few acquisitions there as well, which has been really useful. Uh, and 
The last thing is, I think I, I'm just really impressed at the way that we stay agile to move towards these different shifts that come on. It always surprises me just how agile we can be. So, for example, in 2020, we decided to double down on our mission to uh, deliver like, a world-class cloud experience. And it was just, it was like hundreds of people just moved around in Atlassian to make that happen, which was in a very short period of time, which was impressive. Um, and we're not shy about killing things off with OKL. So I'll, I'll give you another example of um, one of those products that was going through that we ended up killing off. So we had a whiteboard product that we thought would be its its own product, sort of like a like a Jira product discovery. And when we came to one of those gates with the team, we realized actually, you know, this is more like a like a really useful document type. And so now you'll see that it's a feature in confluence, but it was, it was very quick to make that decision. I have this new segment, not that new anymore, called Failure Corner. I'm curious if you have any uh, interesting story of a big failure in your career. And if you do, what you learned from that experience. I think I'll give you a bit of a different one uh, because I think this one is harder to spot. And I think that's really interesting. It's something that I think about all the time, though. So. I missed a really big opportunity to move Atlassian forward when back in the day. Um, and I, yeah, like I said, I think about it every time I review a new idea or look at an opportunity that we're thinking about. So I was on this team and I was improving the way that our products help developers get their work done. And so typically we saw them start in Jira software, they pick up a piece of work and then they'd switch tools. They create a branch, they'd start writing code. And we noticed that they would forget to come back and update the status of their work. And this could create a lot of confusion in the team, right? Another developer could pick up that work, think it wasn't started. And then there was a lot of wasted time. Or if you're trying to track metrics, like how long does it take for a piece of work to get started to through to done, uh, that'll totally skew things. So this was causing a lot of problems. But we didn't want to make developers come back into the tool. That was obviously something that was getting in the way of their work. So we decided to build automation so that they didn't have to. They didn't have to leave their IDE or the command line to do that. They can just keep working. So an example is Jira would detect that a new commit had been created, and then it could automatically move your piece of work to in progress because there's code being written against it. And there are a whole bunch of these examples that parties integrated into it. Uh, and I made the decision to put into Jira as a user was editing their workflow. And it, and we shipped it and it performed just fine. People discovered it. They used it. It uh, seemed to give a lot of value. People liked it, which doesn't really sound like a fail. I don't think that, um, I, where I dropped the ball was more about what I should have realized about that feature. So automation, it's, it's super useful. It can be used by a whole slew of people who are, aren't just developers. It could be used in every single product. It's more than just moving things to, to, you know, a new status. And so I should have realized that we could have built this amazing service that every product could have moved themselves forward with. And years later, Atlassian actually acquired a company that did exactly that this advanced automation and it's in every product now. And so, you know, you can imagine how much it costs to acquire a company. That was a really expensive mistake on my part. So when I see a new idea, I'm always asking myself, like, how do we push this further? 
Is there something there that we can, you know, 10x? Can we apply it more broadly to more types of users, more products? Is there some bigger opportunity that we can really take advantage of? That's an awesome story. So the lesson there is just think bigger with the products that you like. You almost need to wait for it to first be successful, right? For you just to be like, oh, but can we do something more with this? Would you think you should have been thinking about that as you were building it, or would that have been too early? No, I think I think I should have caught that as we were building it because even when I think about the experience, so it was a really good proving ground for it for sure. But even when I think about the experience, just where that experience was designed in product limited its functionality, which is a real shame. I guess the takeaway there is just if you're committing to some idea, ask yourself, what would it look like if this was 10 times bigger? If this was a bigger deal, can this apply to other things we're doing? Is that right? Yeah. Where could this go in three years, five years? And should that change the way that you think about it now? Great advice. Megan, is there anything else that you wanted to share or is there anything you wanted to leave listeners with before we get to our very exciting lightning round? I will leave you with uh, with something. And uh, it's just this practice that I found really useful for my squad that we've implemented pretty recently. So I think, uh, and, and especially with remote work and all of that. So like I said, we have limited time together. But what we put into place is something we call Fight Club. I'll probably get in trouble for talking about Fight Club. The first rule is you don't talk about Fight Club. Everyone but it's uh, 30 minutes. <laughs> it's 30 minutes every week. And it's just for myself, my engineering, and my design leader. And we get together, and we know that we're going in there to have a conflict. I think often when those difficult conversations or those conflicts come up, you can put them off until they become much bigger, or if somebody is conflict adverse, they can try to avoid having it at all. But by having, you know, like a specific sort of time in your week for something like that, then you're sort of in that mindset, you know, you're going in there to solve a hard problem, you know, that there's going to be a disagreement, and it makes it much better. And I think the relationship we all have is so much better because we get on top of these things early. This is super cool. It's like, couples therapy or something where you're just like, what issues do we have? Let's <clears throat> work through them right now. Uh, I love that. I love that. Because it for yeah, and it makes it okay to bring up things that are bothering you and things that you think need to change. And with that, we've reached our very exciting lightning round. Are you ready? Yes, can't wait. Let's do it. First question, what are two or three books that you've recommended most to other people? Oh, look, I, you know, and I have a habit of sending books to everyone who reports to me every year just on uh, a skill they're working on. So I've got a huge list that I actually send out. But um, the one that I send out the most uh, to new PMs, especially, is just inspired by Marty Kagan. It holds up really well. It was recommended to me by my first boss, and it's just got a bunch of great tips in there. Just great foundational knowledge. More recently, what I've been sending out for, for my managers is uh, Scaling People by Claire Hughes Johnson. I think that just came out within the last year, actually. Mm -hmm. But it's just got an incredible amount of really useful uh, tactical things, templates, all sorts of things that you can put into practice. Great choices. We have both on the bookshelf behind me. Both of them have been on the podcast. I wish I 
could see the whole list of books that you recommend to people. You, if you don't have this written out anywhere, you should publish some kind of blog or newsletter post of here's the skill and here's the book you recommend. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, I'm going right. to do that. Thanks, we have Lenny. a homework assignment. Okay, next question. <laughs> what is a favorite recent movie or TV show you've really enjoyed? I, I am so late to TV, but Foundation is the one that I've been binging lately. And I think it's just this uh, this huge world. And I'm not usually one that gets super into sci-fi, but the way that it brings forward some of these ideas, like like for what new technologies could mean. Um, if you haven't seen it, and this isn't really spoiling it, the one of the main characters or three of the main characters are actually clones of this Emperor who rules the universe and, and decided to clone himself at three different stages of his life so that those people could continue ruling. And I think, you know, even that idea just invites the idea of, um, you know, what if, what if we stretched out human life? What are the impact? How do things advance when you've got that same mindset and same people continue on? And it's, it's super compelling. Foundation, the show got ruined for me by reading the books many, many years ago is one of my favorite sci-fi trilogy of all time and then i was so excited for the show and i just is nothing to do with the books basically it's like <laughs> the storyline is completely different like the core idea is the same as the only real so i just can't i just got tired of it and stopped but if you oh, haven't nice. read the books i think you would love it it's beautiful are the books better somewhat like yeah yeah the books are better the books are always better i think is a good rule of thumb yeah but that I, is a good rule i was I'll like a, pick that up. yeah i was like a teenager when i read them so i don't know maybe they suck but I think people love them. Uh, highly recommend the books if you liked the show, especially. Next question. For sure. Do you have a favorite interview question that you'd like to ask candidates? I think it's an old one, but a great one. You know, on the subject of failure, I love to ask people about their biggest failure. And I think it's a good way to get to know somebody because you can see how introspective they are, how much they, they think about what's happened and what they learned from it. It shows whether or not they can be vulnerable with you. You can see what they consider to be a big failure. You know, some people will list something that's not really a failure. Uh, and also you can see about whether they've got that growth mindset. So have they learned something from that? Have they applied it moving forward? I've found, you know, a weird, weird rule that I found is that a lot of the best tires that I've had have had big failure stories that they've worked through and learned from. Uh, and so I think, um, I think that's great to see what they consider there, what the learnings are. But also in the solution, you can also see how they tackle something like that. So are they the type of person who wants to go and forge something all by themselves? Are they the type of person who will pull together a community to figure something out? So you get that insight into their values and their approach from that question too, which is hugely useful. Is there a favorite product you've recently discovered that you really love? Yeah, uh, you might have to stop me from going on and on about this, but I recently got a smoker, a Traeger smoker for smoking meat. And just the unboxing experience was incredible. So you get this, you get this huge box, cardboard box, you open it up. If you reverse the cardboard box, it becomes a, uh, like a, play saloon that your kid can jump into and just oh, wow. mess around in which that's cool you know rather than destroy it you know just throwing it out it becomes something really cool and useful uh the set of instructions has a six pack of beer at the top just helps you understand like how far through 
you should be through your six pack as you're constructing it. Um, you get you get some tools with it, and they're really good. Actually, they're not like the usual kind of throwaway tools that you get in something uh, to put together something like this. And then there's you know in addition to that sort of like playful delightfulness in there. As you build it, you discover things along the way. So um, I opened up the the hopper where you put in your wood pellets, and there was a baseball cap, a tray of baseball cap in there, which just was unexpected and really cool. And then the whole experience of actually using it, you know, once you've set it up, is amazing. So it's all connected to my phone. I can just head to the beach and have some brisket going and come home, and it's beautifully done. It just works. It's integrated. It's got integrated recipes. Yeah, I love it. I'm sold. I need this. This That sounds so delightful. Such a great product experience. I'm going to have to get one, I think. I think we're going to sell some Traeger smokers. (laughs) Next question. (laughs) Do you have a favorite life motto that you often come back to, share with friends, either in work or in life? It's around maximizing joy. And what I mean by that is it's about finding what's important and leaning into it or finding what's annoying and turning it into something I enjoy. So uh, to give you like a super small example is um, I, I'm i terrible with keys. I will leave that thing all over the place. You'll find it in my cutlery drawer or whatever, and I'll never find it again. And I think, you know, an obvious uh, solution to that could be to put a hook on the wall or something where you can just leave them and you go back to that and it's easy to find. But what gives me joy is not actually having to have keys and at all, right? And so now I have a fingerprint reader on my front door and I feel a little bit like James Bond every time I enter my house and uh, I can let people in, you know, if if somebody needs to leave a package or something, that's easy to do. So it was turning turning something annoying into into something more joyful. And I think the other thing there is just uh, I really value keeping great relationships uh, and increasing those relationships. And so uh, I always make time for these amazing friends that I have that live in London. Uh, and we have this pact where every time either one of us goes to the other's continent, we'll go meet them there. Mm-hmm. So every time we go to Europe, which last year I was in Berlin at one point and Amsterdam another point, they came over and we just hung out and had a great time. And so it's it's making sure that you make time for those important things. Along the same lines, final question. Related to creating more joy, I noticed a beautiful surfboard behind you. For somebody that's trying to surf and maybe not being successful, what's one tip you could share with listeners to improve their success with surfing? (laughs) Isn't surfing the most humbling sport that you've ever tried? Yeah, I've tried a few times and yeah, I I would say so. Uh, I think surfing's really interesting I've never done a sport like it in that um, it's it's something that you have to really feel. So I find every time you learn a new thing about surfing, you sort of feel it before you know how to do it. So even just being able to catch a wave, uh, a, a greenpeace wave, right? You're paddling, you're paddling, you don't quite know where to be. You don't quite know how much to paddle for that wave. And you just have to sort of be successful a couple of times before you get the feel for it. And it's the same with... Um, with trying to find the right wave. We, when I looked at the ocean the first time to try and pick the wave and pick where to be, I couldn't even see the shape of it to find that right place. It, it took me, you know, just seeing a hundred waves to be able to do that. Uh, so my 
My best tip for surfing is get out there, keep doing it, do it over and over and over again. You will get better. You'll start to see all of these things that you've never noticed before. Uh, and get some friends, get some friends out there, get a, um, an surfing accountability buddy mm-hmm. to make sure that you're getting out there. It's the best buddy. Amazing. Megan, we've talked about play and safety and buy-in and fighting the good fight and adding new product lines. Uh, two final questions. Also surfing. Two final questions. Where can folks find you online if they want to reach out and maybe follow up on some stuff? And how can listeners be useful to you? Yeah, so the best place to find me is on LinkedIn. I'm Megan Cook on LinkedIn. You can also find me if you're a customer in the Atlassian community, if you want to have a chat. Uh, and I'm also on social media. So on X, you can find me there as well. And uh, to be useful to me, uh, look, any feedback, absolutely any feedback on your software, always hungry for that. Uh, also really keen if you want to just chat about how people's ways of working are evolving and shifting and changing and how do you think that's going to turn out and how you see your goals for your team changing i would love to talk about that please get in touch awesome megan thank you so much for being here thank you lenny it's been fun same bye everyone thank you so much for listening if you found this valuable you can subscribe to the show on apple podcasts spotify or your favorite podcast app Also, please consider giving us a rating or leaving a review as that really helps other listeners find the podcast. You can find all past episodes or learn more about the show at Lenny'sPodcast.com. See you in the next episode.